0: Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, uh, very happy on this Labor Day to have Dr. John Shelton with me. John is the Associate Professor of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. He's also the Vice President for Higher Ed of the American Federation of Teachers in Wisconsin. He's written extensively about the history of labor and about the labor actions among educators, And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Very, very happy to have John on the show. John, uh, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here, and and especially on Labor Day.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I thought that might be a good place for us to get started, although actually taking a step back from there, typically uh, when I have someone on the show who hasn't been on before, I ask for their origin story, what got you to where you are in education and in your uh, career and life to this point. So maybe we could begin there and then move into the, the history uh, of Labor Day, which I think would be a nice next topic to talk about, but just to get started, who are you and how did you get to where you are in your career today? Sure. I'll try to make it quick.
1: Mm-hmm. So I started my career as a K-12 teacher in a charter school in North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. This was back pretty much right out of my undergraduate work in uh, 2004, 2005. And I was teaching in a, in a school in North Philadelphia, like 99% free and reduced lunch students, almost entirely, student population, almost entirely students of color. And so my students came from uh, working class families. They tried very hard. They had a number of, of challenges. These were so early days of charter school, they'd only been around for about a decade at that point. And, and mm-hmm. that was a moment where they were really proliferating. So I, I, this was a new charter school. I taught uh, the same students for two years, actually. So I taught yeah. the first graduating class of the school and I stay in touch, actually, with a number of the students still today. Mm-hmm. I also met my partner there, who was also a teacher. And so this was a, a really challenging situation and, and doing that work. One of the things that I, I did was kind of take a more critical look at the education system, what needed to change so that students could be successful. How do we explain the history of, of race in the United States, the, the, a lot of the class dynamics uh, that exist in our country? So I decided to go back uh, to grad school as a historian. I ended up writing a dissertation that looked at the history of uh, teacher unions in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And how some of the, uh, you know, massive conflicts that teachers and, and their unions were embroiled in related to urban political economy, related to race, some of the black freedom struggle, related to bigger economic crises, bigger crises over labor in the decade. How will that impact American politics? Uh, and so from there, I got a job in Wisconsin. I like to say that Stan Walker, the, the anti-labor governor. Helped me to get a job here because after Act 10 protests in 2011, there was a, you know, a, an exodus of, of some faculty to retired people who were close to retiring. And so I ended up being hired actually to replace somebody who went into administration. Hmm. So I'd been in Wisconsin to 2013. Eventually that dissertation came out as a book in 2017. And while I was here, got involved in politics, particularly the labor movement. So I was an immediate recruit to the labor movement here. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of years, I was vice president of higher education for AFT Wisconsin, yep. my partner again, who I met teaching back in the late 90s, ran in a, in a really heavily contested school board election a couple of years ago. So she is very, very progressive and into changing the education system to make it more equitable. Yep. She's now running for state assembly. Just won a very competitive uh, primary beating an incumbent Democrat just a few weeks ago. So both of us together kind of at this moment where we're really, I think, fighting hard for schools, economic security, for working people, which, of course, is more apparent than ever during the crisis that we're seeing. Yeah. And and really how to make
0: uh, American politics more democratic.
1: So that's my, that's my origin story in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's an interesting one. And uh, it definitely gives you some bona fides to talk to us about the history of labor movements in the U.S., and then in particular, how the domains of labor and education intersect. And then from there, maybe we could explore what may be on the horizon for us as we look at back to school, whether it's K-12, higher ed, elsewhere, everybody's going back on campus or they're not. There's plenty, plenty going on there. But just to begin, though, I, I saw an interesting article from you, which we'll share out when we release the show. Around the history of Labor Day, which interestingly has to do with things beyond whether you can wear uh, white or not, and whether you can attend a barbecue or get a nice beach getaway. There actually is a labor component to the history of Labor Day, which I was not surprised, but I was very pleased to see you spelled it out for us a little bit. Can you summarize a bit about just the history of Labor Day? Where did it come from? And what are some of the moments in time that's increased the, the relevance of labor and or Labor Day over the past 100, uh, 150 years?
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and thanks for the reminder that I
0: can't wear white tomorrow.
1: <laughs> so Labor Day goes back to the 1880s. And to your listeners who may not know this, in the late 19th century, pretty much after you know, the Civil War and Reconstruction, Maybe the central problem in American politics, I don't, I don't want to discount the very deplorable history of race in the United States, but, but maybe the most important problem in American history from about the 1880s through really the, the New Deal and World War II was something that historians call the labor law. Um, and so as more and more Americans started working for wages in the marketplace and, and having employers who were well, becoming more and more concentrated and more and more wealthy had to, you know could organize more and more to you know extract more from people who worked for a living, mm-hmm. workers in turn organized. I mean in the in the eighteen, seventies, eighteen nineties, there was a real sense uh, from, from most people who work in factories that they're they were under constant threat of having their work set up, having to work more hours and work for less pay with less economic security. One of the things that we don't think about now is how much the, the government does when there are times of economic uncertainty. Sure. I mean, maybe we're thinking a little bit more about that now, but when you think about like the, the deal that was broken with Democrats to provide enhanced unemployment benefits and, and yep. uh, moratorium on evictions, of course, that's a, that's a big problem now because we're seeing those things. We've seen those things expire. But back in the 19th century, when there were economic crises, the government basically did nothing and people right. just didn't get paid for a long time. So, so in the 1870s or 80s, you have these, these this growing labor movement and there, there are a significant number of battles. In 1877, for example, I'm, I'm actually looking at an image right now that I keep in my office of the Pittsburgh Railroad Depot being burned down mm-hmm. by workers who are angry about the fact that after four years of basically depression-level conditions, the, the railroad company they worked for at the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Your listeners probably know the B&O Railroad from Monopoly. Yeah, exactly. The the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad got people's wages and it started in West Virginia and spread all over the East Coast and angry railroad workers like literally burned down parts of the city. So that was the kind of context. And this happened quite often and and there were huge conflagrations every two years. So 1882, when workers organized, it was actually the first Labor Day parade was in New York City. Hmm it was a it was an attempt to really command public space, right? Because in the nineteenth century, you don't have the same kind of mass media that you have now, and people are very rooted locally. So the Labor Day parade in eighteen eighty two and that at September was an attempt to basically say to the city, most of your city are working people, right? And we're organized. We're going to you know take back some of the power. so it it took another ten years for the federal government to make it. Uh, a national holiday, and there's some controversy over that because there was also, some of your listeners might be aware of, of May Day, which happens on yes. May 1st, that, that was related to really a very radical labor uprising in 1986. May Day is celebrated all over Europe, but not celebrated in the United States, even though May Day was initiated in the United States. There was a struggle centered in New York, Chicago, Milwaukee, other places or we you now are workday, which is something we all take for granted. Right. So, so to, to a certain extent, the fact that we don't celebrate May Day is in part related to the fact that some of the more radical traditions in the United States didn't quite rise to the level of, of popular consciousness where, they were act- where it was actively suppressed. And so Labor Day is really, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say that it, it, it wasn't representative of workers organizing, because it definitely was. And sometimes I hear people on the left say, Oh, Labor Day is just this way to co-opt these more radical traditions. I don't think that's the case, but it certainly was a slightly more conservative way of, of celebrating labor than say made it was.
0: Just real quick on that too. It is important, I imagine then, to, to harken back to the actual history of Labor Day like we're doing right now, uh, in, in essence, to remind people, even if it is a more conservative observance of recognizing labor in the U.S., it still is nonetheless a, a recognition of labor particularly if we remember the history, we call attention to it, and we try and reflect on how that history may inform us in this day and age. And there's probably plenty for us to chew on on that front. So so I'd love to hear more of the history, but any ways in which we can start tying it to some of the stuff that's happening uh, in this day and age is definitely an area that I think folks would be really interested in.
1: Sure, there have been some you know, really big moments for Labor Day. Your listeners probably, some of them probably don't remember this, but after the labor movement kind of became pretty firmly entrenched as the mainstream of American politics mm-hmm. in the 40s, 50s, and 60s following the New Deal, Labor Day celebrations were, I mean, I, I'm thinking about this because it's the presidential election year, yeah. you know, were offset the initiation point of like the general election, particularly for Democratic candidates, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was when unions started to, say, to, to start mobilizing for their candidates. Mm-hmm. So it has that history. There are other moments when, when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, mm-hmm. a lot of unions saw this as, as being something uh, that was slapped in the face of, of workers, particularly because Reagan had a, a history of being very anti union. Although it's, it's interesting because Reagan is actually the only yeah, president of the U.S. who's never president of a labor union. Ah, no. um, but in his first year in office, Reagan, of course, fires the air traffic controllers who were mm-hmm. on strike. Right. A, union, a union that had actually endorsed it. one mm-hmm. of the few unions that had endorsed and made up a number of military veterans. Right. So there was a, a, a sense that, that labor needs to kind of idolize itself. Mm-hmm. And so there was Labor Day, 1981, the union's turned this into something called Solidarity Day. And it's, it was actually one of the biggest demonstrations in American history in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there were like a quarter of a million. Yeah, there were like a quarter of a million people there. And then they and then the afl CIO continued to sponsor Solidarity Day every year for you know at least several years going forward mm-hmm. into the Reagan era. And so there was an attempt to really kind of build on that history of the labor movement to revitalize labor. Right. And and I think right now, obviously this this labor day, this is the direction you want to go. I mean, this is this is freighted with so much significance because kids are going back to school, all of a sudden work and workers That typically a lot of Americans, especially a lot of politicians, don't spend a lot of time thinking about Mm -hmm. essential workers who work in meatpacking plants and and grocery stores, nurses, and of course, teachers, many of whom are, are some districts are back in person under a condition that I know are very scary for some teachers, especially those who are sure that they're risking their health. Yeah. Others, like the school where my kids go, are facing the daunting task of trying to convert in-person instruction to online instruction and in the case where you have lots of parents who maybe are essential workers and they have to work and so you've got very little support at home or parents feel really challenged. So I think this is a a major moment and it also happens to coincide with really a kind of growing consciousness among a lot of teacher unions, a lot of other educator unions that it's essential to organize right now in order to protect kids, protect our public education systems, and maybe even possibly democratize our education system, make it share, or make it better, and and use the leverage that teachers have uh, to help deal with things like the concentration of wealth in this country mm-hmm. um, and the, the lack of public services that so many kids and families need.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. and uh, And kind of building on that aspect of the history, you have been tracking over the last, say, three or four years some more activation among educators on the labor front. There has been more teachers walking out. Can you flesh out a little bit of the more recent history of uh, organized labor as it relates to, to education?
1: Yeah, sure. So in the, the book that I wrote deals with the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm-hmm. And in, in that uh, book, one of the things that I talk about is how naturally the time that a lot of teacher unions became institutionalized as mainstream players in American politics. A lot of your listeners probably don't realize that the idea of collectively bargained contracts for teachers, at least in terms of American labor history, is pretty recent. The first union to get a collectively bargained contract was the United Federation of Teachers in New York City. And that was in 1962. Mm -hmm. And so then after that, lots of other, it took struggle. It took fights. It took, it took strikes sometimes. But, you know, then after that, the story of the sixties and seventies, the teachers in a lot of other places organizing, getting collectively bargaining contracts, not everywhere, of course, uh, as I'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. all those states that really didn't, you know, have strong labor movements and that had laws that were against public sector workers. Those are typically concentrated in, you know, what we think of as red states, the Sunbelt, the South, uh, the West, they didn't have this kind of strength that teachers had other places, but with that, with those developments, at least for some unions, kind of came a sense that a lot of union leaders weren't as responsive to either their members and their members' needs or to the needs of the community. And so this quintessential example of this is, is Chicago, where in the 90s and, and yachts, the city was being remade and, and, and in a lot of cases by Democrats, like William Daly, who was mayor at the time selling off public assets, investing in, in charter schools and, and closing down neighborhood schools. And, and some of these schools were in, were in a dangerous neighborhoods in some cases, but they were basically being closed without much of an alternative, except for uh, maybe, maybe some charter schools. And so one of the things that happened is that a, a group of teachers in Chicago, led by the Caucus of and File educators, won an election in 2010 to, to, to lead the, the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union. With the goal of working more with the community to make demands that would make the entire city more equitable, right? I mean, Chicago, much like a lot of American cities, very, very inequitable, a growing population of, of wealthy people and, and a growing working class who either lacked access to good jobs or uh, were kind of stuck in service jobs where minimum wages weren't going up, right? So those were, those are the tariffs disproportionately yeah, black and brown. And those were the parents, you know, those kids were in the, 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 the classroom in CPS. So what the Chicago teachers union did and what they continue to do over the past decade is really pretty amazing. Working closely to rebuild the organizing capacity of the union, to work with communities of color to, to figure out what it is that action done, mm-hmm. put out this, this call for action called the, the school Chicago's children deserve in uh, 2011. And then, of course, they had a strike in 2012 in a Democratic city right before the 2012 election, right? And the the mayor was Rahm Emanuel, who had been Obama's chief of Mm staff. So I think what was really important about that were some of the demands they were making were to limit standardized testing, more support staff in the schools. And I think it was really the first kind of substantial teacher strike in the U.S. in like 25 years. Right and 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 I think it showed that teachers could ask for these things and win. I mean, it was nothing like what a lot of teacher unions are asking for now. But it was a really big step. Mm-hmm. And so, in the years after that, I think you had a lot of other unions uh, and rank and file teachers uh, and so look at that as a model for how to make demands upon an education system that wasn't serving teachers and that wasn't serving students. Mm-hmm. So, in, in you know 2018, you kicked off in West Virginia, which maybe some irony or, or some parallel to the fact that that uh, railroad strike in 1877 started in West Virginia. Right. And, uh, teacher walkouts in 2018 started in West Virginia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, teachers organized against, really against the fact that public education system had been underinvested. There was a, there was a sense that the pension system was going to go under because of the cuts that had been made to it. So teachers and other school personnel walked out there. That was not a strike that was legal in contrast to the CTU strike, which was legal. The West Virginia walkout was something that was illegal, but when you have tens of thousands of teachers walking out, there's very little that school districts can do. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of um, teachers in other states then, of course, took a look at that and said, wow, these, these teachers are advocating not just for themselves, but for the whole community. And they can basically win increases in funding for education, even from Republican legislatures, right? And so i sure your listeners know probably a lot of that trajectory, right? I mean, then that, that action was followed by Oklahoma and, and, mm-hmm. and Arizona and it's full-blown open-ended walkouts, but then also some more limited action in, in Kentucky and North Carolina and other places. Yep. And then, then the years that have followed, I'm losing all track of time here. I think it was early 2019, right? You have the big action in Los Angeles where now LA teachers were saying, okay, let's expand our demands even more and let's ask for a moratorium on charter schools. Let's ask for services for homeless students. Let's ask for yeah, legal services for undocumented students who right. are in the United States for no reason other than their parents brought them here. You've seen us upping up these stakes. or CTU had another strike last fall mm-hmm. where they were putting things mm-hmm. on the table like affordable housing. and And so now you have some of the more militant teacher union within the United States, basically in in places like Chicago, LA, uh, Denver, and some of these other places where you have had recent walkouts, basically saying like, we're going to, we're going to advocate for the things our students need. And of course, with the, with the murder of George
0: Floyd Mm
1: -hmm. uh, and Jacob Blake, Brianna Taylor, a lot of these unions are now even asking to, to keep school resource officers and the police out of schools, really broadening their demands. And the national AFT has... Kind of, kind of picked up on some of the sense that a lot of teachers are really scared about going back into classrooms when they're unsure it's going to be safe. So the AFT over the summer actually said we're going to support teachers that go on strike in order to ensure that their schools are safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we are seeing a. a, a, I'm a historian. I don't like to exaggerate, but I think we are in a moment where we're seeing a a huge renewed militance of, of teachers and educators. And what's really distinct about it is, I don't want it to come up as something simplistic, but I think teachers and other educators should be able to advocate for their own work course. But what's really unique about this is that so many teachers in the unions are now actively saying, we can't just advocate for our teaching condition and our working conditions. We have to think about how they're connected to the needs of our students. And I think that that is such a profound shift and and such a development that's really worth watching.
0: Yeah, we were talking a bit about some of the professional sports unions and teams and players that have taken action in the last uh, few weeks around the uh, Jacob Blake incident in Kenosha, in Wisconsin. That is. I think increasing awareness also coinciding with the Black Lives Matter movement and the activation of more of a protest culture in the U.S., it does seem like there are places where awareness of unions and of labor actions that are tied to uh, the broader challenges that we're facing, whether it's the pandemic or racial inequities or economic inequities, it does seem like there's an increased Awareness of the potential to take actions like like those that the NBA and others did recently. Putting your uh, prognosticators hat on, what are you anticipating? What might we see? And uh, you won't be held accountable, so feel free to uh, wax uh, creative or poetic or uh, visionary. But uh, what are you anticipating a- in the form?
1: Yeah. So uh, let let me say first. I can't remember who said it. I think I read this on Twitter somewhere. But if you're if you're a sports fan like I am, and mm-hmm. you have mentioned that you're a huge NBA fan, I, I'm more of a of a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you were like me, you probably spent a couple of months in the late spring, early summer, reading about all of the challenges of getting these, these games back together again, and yeah, yeah. you you feel you you feel kind of intensive or something like wishing to have these games back because you realize you know, these athletes are workers and they're putting themselves in harm's way. But I think it is a sense of wanting to have some semblance of, of normalcy. And for sports fans, even as weird as it is to be watching the games in the NBA bubble or major league baseball games with no fans, mm-hmm. you know, it it's still brings some level of normalcy to what is such a certainly uh, abnormal situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I, I heard, I think it was a tweet, was basically like, two months ago, who would have thought that the thing to bring down the NBA might be racial inequality and not COVID? Right, right, right. Um, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating that you're seeing so many different Americans taking to the streets, protesting, thinking about more kinds of radical action. And so to your point, it, it's hard to know, of course, what's going to happen uh, sure. and, and, and just leave everything with that caveat. But to me, everything right now is up in the air, right? I mean, the, the, the COVID crisis, you know, combined with the, the continued murder of, of of black people in the United States has created this moment where it, it's it's almost like it's it's shown a light on all of the problems that we have. What, whatever fictions Americans were able to bent themselves of uh, a year ago about how our society worked and at whatever portion of the population was able to you know actually access all the services they needed to have good lives—that's all up in the air, right? I mean, people in Wisconsin, there are still people I know who have been able to access unemployment benefits. Uh, businesses are closing down. And I was just reading in the New York Times the this, this story about the, the Trump program to ensure that nobody had to pay outrageous hospital bills when they were hospitalized for COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, if the federal government can do that, if they can provide health care during an economic crisis, why can't they do it all the time, right? Now, uh, if they can if they can forgive student loans, they can place a moratorium mm-hmm. on student loans for now nine months without the government collapsing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it indicate that we could probably do that uh, full time going forward? Mm-hmm. right. so so to me, it's it's just highlighted how much really up the year and and how much if Americans are willing to organize, how much better we could make our lives. And you have people talking now about taking resources. Uh, from police departments and repurposing it for uh, youth education programs, for, for, for affordable housing. these are things that we should have been talking about before COVID, but now, as more and more people's you know, lives are becoming threatened by this and dire, and, and take it to the education system too. I, this is, in Wisconsin, this is the first day of school for us, right? And so my, my partner and I are we're, we're basically figuring out, okay. These are the days you're going to yeah. literally sit home with your kids and make sure that they can interface with all these, this online yeah. instruction they have. Yeah. The yeah. Teachers are under yeah. enormous stress to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And so it really highlights how valuable the labor is of teachers, how valuable our yes. public institutions are and how we fighting for they are. Yeah. Them. So again, it's, it's hard to know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I'm not one of these people as a historian. I, I really believe in contingency. I'm not one of these people that thinks that political things move according to a pendulum mm-hmm. or that there are are like natural evan floats anything. And I think things move when people make them move, when people organize. And and to me, that's the thing that has to happen is Americans who believe in these things, we have to figure out what the institutions are that are going to allow us to continue to organize and press forward. And for most of American history, or at least recent American history, Labor unions have been essential in making those things happen. Mm-hmm. And so unions have to be a part of this. I mean, it's it's encouraging to me to see more unions calling or repurposing police resources to other things for calling out the police murder of black people, mm-hmm. you mentioned that the professional sports union, but I think that's great to advocate for the needs of students. But, but to me, a big challenge is how do we organize a sustained and lasting political presence to really make some big demands on our society, like right? mm-hmm. to, to to have to have union teacher units, for example, say not only do we need to get back in person, I need to get back in person safely and make sure that our kids have things they need to do well in school. We also need to rethink education. I mean, we we need to think about how we can how we can do this differently and make it more child centered. Mm-hmm. And now the public has to do it. So mm-hmm. so it's it's again there, there's so much contingency, and I think. The challenge is how do we organize, how do we build the kind of structures to, to take change and uh, to take these demands and move them in very structured and meaningful ways. And I think you're seeing that with some unions, but I but I do think there needs to be more and and there needs to be more intense work in actually organizing both within workplaces.
0: Yeah. Just maybe a note or two on, on higher education, because I think we've been focused mainly on uh, K-12 right. in the conversation thus far, but a lot of our listeners are, are very passionate uh, and focused on higher education, which also is facing some real fundamental challenges, very different from some of the challenges that are facing our K-12 or or other spaces. But any perspective on that, just how to think about teachers, faculty, adjuncts, uh, graduate assistants, there's been a decent amount of labor activity within higher ed as well, and uh, many of the same challenges many of the same health and safety concerns and uh, issues around uh, talking about topics like race and uh, social equity and, and the like. Any perspective there in, in higher ed?
1: Yeah, so you think about what we expect institutions of higher education to do, right? We, we expect them to train good citizens. We also rightly or wrongly expect them to you know, be one of the primary ways for Americans to access jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we expect them to have this, you know, huge public focus. And yet for the most part, obviously this is particularly the case of private institutions, but the public institutions, we expect them to basically function uh, on tuition dollars, right? So so the story in in the U.S. over the past several decades has been a disinvestment in public education. Of course, public still spend a lot of money, but they, they expect you know, that, that students will take out loans and, and pay them yeah. back over yeah. a very long period of time. And so it turns out that in moments of, of crisis, relying on a strictly consumer based model puts a lot of, mean, um, pressure on an institution that's supposed to have a public purpose in a yeah. lot of ways the, the threats to higher education are, are even more dire yeah. than to public education, yes. right? Because we don't expect families. I mean, of course they, they indirectly pay for them through property taxes. Uh, But we don't expect them to directly pay for the services that they're getting. And so in in a lot of places, there's already been attempts to use this crisis or in some cases successful attempts to use this crisis to uh, shift resources away from uh, academic programs that are not seen as immediately tied to business uh, uh, and business development. You've seen efforts to make the, the workforce at an institution much more precarious. So maybe the best example of this so far is uh, the University of Akron, which is where my former chancellor went at UW-Green Bay that he, he left just last year I went to the University of Akron and cut something like 100 tenure and tenure track faculty mm-hmm. because of this, this, this budget crisis. And, that, and that's a place that has, that has a union with a collectively bargaining contract. Ohio's higher ed faculty has collected, collected bargaining. Yeah. And so I know the union pushed back against it, but it wasn't something that, that they were able to really stop. So that's happening in a lot of different places. The equity issues that you talk about are becoming hugely manifest in it's in not. institutions of higher education. In the UW system, I don't know if your listeners have heard about this all, but we had a search for the next UW system printed in. And the Board of Regents did the search. They um, did it differently this time where they didn't include any faculty or staff on the search committee. Mm. And so when they revealed the finalists, one finalist, after a, a year-long search, now obviously COVID brought challenges, they revealed one finalist. The announcement came, I can't, I can't remember the exact day, but it was like a couple of days after the George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. And the only finalist was a white man from Alaska. Mm-hmm. So our union, as well as unions all, all across the system, really organized. We raised, uh, you know, an enormous conversation about this. At his public interview, when he was asked about diversity issues, he said a number of pretty tone-deaf things. And he was basically, because we organized against it, he withdrew from the search process. And then the faculty union at, in Alaska actually continued to put pressure on him, and he actually resigned from his position there. So, this I think really galvanized the conversation because it would like, okay, number one, you're cutting faculty and staff out of the process. And if you'd had any faculty and staff on the committee, we would have said, hey, putting forward one candidate the, the day after George Floyd was murdered, who's a white man, is a terrible idea. This is why we, uh, universities, we have collaborative decision making processes. So we would have told you not to do that. That, that mm-hmm. would have looked really, really bad. But also the fact that our institutions of higher education are really some of the places the, the where there's the least amount of diversity mm-hmm. um, in our country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and it really underscored this thing. So I think right now there's a, the confluence of a few things happening in higher ed. Number one, first of all, this semester, a lot of my colleagues are very nervous about going back into the classroom. For those who are going into the classroom, very nervous about trying to ensure that all of their students needs on that. Uh, this is a big issue for us at UW-Green Bay because we do not, for the most part, have elite students. Many of them have issues uh, with getting access to Wi-Fi. So like God. the idea of just like running your whole class by Zoom, that's not something that's gonna look at our university. And I right. imagine lots of faculty and staffs uh, in other places in the United States are, are dealing with this too. So that's number two, this immediate stuff. But then long-term, What does our university system budget look like moving forward? And our our campus, we've fortunately been able to maintain our numbers of students. Other campuses that are facing even something like a 10% drop in enrollment is catastrophic and it means potentially people losing their job. And so it's just not any way to organize this institution that we say fulfilled this massive and important public purpose to have it completely reliant on tuition dollars and and the lens of employers. So I think one of of my frustrations in higher ed is if you're a professor listening to this, hopefully you already get this. But one of my frustrations is professors, particularly those with tenure, not realize that we're workers in the university, and that we have to advocate for sure, not only the things that we need at workers, but the things that our students need. Mm-hmm. And we have to think about the university that way. And so we need more uh, to put it bluntly, we need more faculty and staff in universities to think about themselves as being workers to join unions to become part of the movement, mm-hmm. and basically not just save our universities but uh, reconstitute them to the 21st century in a way where they're actually open and inclusive and they serve the whole population and they actually do what they're designed to do, which is to teach Americans to be citizens in a democracy and prepare them to meet all of their capabilities as people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic perspective, I think, just to to perhaps start to bring us uh, to conclusion. I do typically ask my guests just to, to... Talk about any trends that are capturing your imagination that maybe we haven't discussed so far, and they don't have to be specific to the topic of our conversation so far. And then any closing thoughts, any perspective from you just around what's emerging, what folks may want to notice or track as uh, an emerging trend on the horizon. And then, and then with that, also like any any concluding thoughts. I will uh, say thanks, thanks so much uh, for your time. I really appreciate uh, getting the the broader perspective around labor history and uh, its impact on democracy over the last uh, 130, 150 years. But uh, any concluding thoughts, any perspectives on that stuff to keep an eye out for as, as we, we look ahead in these crazy times?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and let me say to you, Mike, this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for, for having me on here. And if, if any of your uh, listeners want to get in touch with me, Nate, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you can just share my contact info. But Shelton J at uwgb.edu mm-hmm. and I'm also on Twitter at, at Pros Shelton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm thinking about this a lot in this election year. I'm writing another book right now, and this is actually one of the big things that I'm thinking about is how public education has become, in a lot of ways, one of the essential political problems in our and maybe not for the reason that you might think. One of the, the the problems I think we have, right? So just to go back to the 19th century for just a second. In the 19th century, when both education reformers, people like Horace Mann, who uh, was an elite education reformer, but also working people, a lot of unions supported the idea of public education. And it's not the reason that a lot of your listeners would think, which is that Americans need to get education because they need skills. It really wasn't about that. It was about educating them to be citizens in a democracy. As we get to the 20th century, for a number of reasons, that shifts. And in this moment in time, with, with uh, the New Deal where there's this profound call to actually create what we might think of as social democracy, that Americans are entitled to certain things in order to have good fulfilling lives, right? So uh, FDR outlined this, but it's probably the best example of this. He outlined the second Bill of Rights in 1944, right? This mm-hmm. is when he's running for elections for his fourth term. Mm-hmm. And that list of rights is the right to a job, the right to housing, the right to healthcare, you eventually get to the right to an education, but it's actually the last of the rights. Mm-hmm. And what I think FDR was trying to say there is that uh, education only makes sense if it's part of this larger series of things that Americans need to have good lives, jobs, health care, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, over the past 40 or 50 years, we really don't have any mainstream political force in the United States making that argument. And and to me, I'd say one of the big places where mainstream Democrats have gone wrong is by making the argument that public education can solve for all of these other things that we failed to invest in. Right. I mean, right now, again, I've said this before, but everybody need has the right to help care. We should be thinking about how everybody can actually have help in this country. We should be figuring out how every American can have access to a good job. And, you know, I'm just thinking about this election and education really hasn't come up that much in this presidential election. Yep. Of course, I'm trying to think what I've really heard Joe Biden say about it. And, and, I, and full disclosure here, I'm gonna vote for Biden, even though I, I, I don't think he's successfully made this argument. Mm-hmm. But he, I hear him he talk about economic livelihood. I hear him say things like, we're gonna teach all those minors and so we keep coming back to West Virginia. Yeah. We're <laughs>
0: gonna
1: teach all those minors who have lost their jobs because coal mining is gone, we're gonna teach them how to code. Mm-hmm. And okay, maybe that's a reality for, for some of those miners, but but we can't expect our public education system to do all of the work in this country. And I think really going back in particular to the 90s with Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Council wing of the party, and this definitely continued to the Obama administration, this argument that just investing in public education and giving people the right skills is going to be the thing that's going to solve the economic inequalities in this country. I think there's been a massive resistance to that narrative, both from Democratic voters, right, people who typically may not vote in election, right, but also Republican voters. And I think to some extent, I know the Trump phenomenon is enormously complicated, but I think that's one of the reasons we have Trump, right, is because a lot of blue-collar Republican voters feel like that the Democratic Party has decided not to do anything for blue collar jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't think that we shouldn't be investing in green jobs. Of course, so like you can't have mainstream Democrats say things like "I'm just going to put coal companies out of business" unless there's a real plan to ensure that working people have access to to decent jobs. Yeah. So to me, that's where I think public education. I, and I would ask your listeners to think about this how we think about public education matters a lot. And I'm an educator. Of course, I think it's important. We have to ask it to do the right things. We have to ask it to do those things in conjunction with all of these other things that we need our society to do. So when we're talking about investing in public education, we also have to be talking about healthcare and jobs and childcare and all the things that have to happen in order to ensure that every American can be a full citizen of this country. And, and by the way, that would go a long way dealing with the just outjects racial inequities that we're still facing in this country. So, so that would be my pitch uh, to, to everybody is to think about that questions.
0: Yeah, lots to chew on, lots to think about this Labor Day, perhaps while you're chewing on some barbecue or whatever other festivities you may engage in. It's also time to reflect a little bit on the, the history of organized labor and this year in particular, how that relates to, to education. And uh, Dr. John Shelton, it's really been a pleasure to get you on the show and to get your perspective. I would encourage our, our listeners to track John down and see what's going on. And uh, to your point, I think try to understand the importance of education, but also the importance of education in that broader context. Thanks again for joining us, John.
1: It absolutely was my pleasure. Thanks, you, I'm happy to come back anytime.
0: Awesome. And for our listeners, thanks again for listening. Go off and enjoy your Labor Day and here's to a wonderful September and we'll obviously keep our eyes open to what's happening and emerging in the world around us. Thanks as always for listening to Trending and Education.